no doubt, completely miraculous. So we could look at that component. Uh, we could look at the impact on the people. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Israelites, and they're protected. The Egyptians aren't. And there's all these different components all wrapped up into this story. Now, as a child, this may have been my favorite story in the Bible because they're plagues. Like, this stuff is just fascinating. And I remember, regardless of what I was taught in church, I often thought to myself, which plague would have been the worst one to experience? Now, it was very easy for me to figure out which one was not the worst one to experience, and that would have been the plague of the livestock. I've never owned any cattle. So that one really didn't bother me all that much. And actually, darkness didn't really bother me all that much, too, because as a nine-year-old, you just kind of think of the light being turned off and what nine-year-olds go to admit to someone else that they're scared of the plague of darkness, right? So that one really wasn't all that bad either. And you know what? Believe it or not, the final plague, the death of the firstborn, I was born second. And uh, my brother's here this morning, actually. And there's probably at least one day in my life that I wouldn't have mind if that plague kind of swept over our, our home. But, but these other plagues, water being turned to blood, frogs, bats, flies, boils, hail, Locusts, I actually wasn't scared of that one either because I didn't even know what a locust was. So that, that one wasn't all that big of a deal. But as a nine-year-old and I was an adult, I understand that locusts is a grasshopper. I understand that darkness was not just kind of this twilight, but it was actually, the story says, it was a darkness that was felt. Cattle, the livestock being killed, what sort of impact would that have on our community if that happened? Economically, with jobs food resources, despair. These plagues were absolutely horrendous, absolutely incredible. And even though that Moses is the featured story in this character, we come to know a new character in this story, and this, this character acts as the villain, and his name is Pharaoh. His name, actually, we, we don't know. It's not recorded in, in the Bible, and it seems like it's intentional by the narrator not to give him the authority or the luxury of even being named in the Bible. But his title is Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the word Pharaoh means the great house. He is not just a, a person. He's an entity. He's like the entire government, the entire people is all associated with this man named Pharaoh. And as we saw in this video clip from the prince of Egypt, Uh, there is this battle going on between Pharaoh and Moses, who is representing God. And I'm pretty sure that uh, through the the course of of this movie, you would have have caught on through, as we've looked at it through through different times here, we have probably the producers who are trying to figure out how do we encapsulate this entire story into a a feature film of 90 minutes or so. And a lot of animated films, they have their, their nice soundtracks that go with it, and I'm sure there's a lot of revenue they generate by creating these songs. In this movie, I think they probably figured out and said, how are we going to cover 10 plagues all together in, in one story? And they thought, well, we can, we can write a song and we can take three chapters of the Bible and we can condense it into two and a half minutes and maybe win an Academy Award for the song. And so that's what they did. And if you look at, at the, the different plagues in and of themselves, they're actually not that different in how the story plays out. Sometimes Moses says something a little bit differently. Sometimes Pharaoh will speak. Sometimes he will just ignore what Moses says. But pretty much you can summarize this, the whole plagues with Moses saying, let my people go, four words, and Pharaoh saying, I will not let your people go. On and on and on it goes through all those plagues. In fact, the final lyrics in the song that we just watched are from Pharaoh. He says, never mind how high the cross the cost may grow, 
this will still be so. I will never let your people go. I will not let your people go. And the question that I want to ask this morning, based on this story, is why? Why doesn't Pharaoh let the Israelites go? He gets a warning. He gets a plague. He gets a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth. Why does Pharaoh not let the Israelites go? Why doesn't he relent? Well, I think the easy answer to this question, an answer that everyone of every age here this morning can understand, except for maybe the infants, is that Pharaoh was mean. Like, Pharaoh is the bad guy. He's, he's the ruthless king. This is a man of, of terrible character. Everything we see in the story and, and what we understand of him was he was stubborn, he was prideful, he was violent, he was vindictive. He was the quintessential villain in this story. He was just flat out mean. And when God speaks through the burning bush to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he tells Moses that Pharaoh will not let the Israelites go, quote, unless a mighty hand compels him. So we get this understanding that this is just this stubborn, terrible guy, and he's not just going to let them go unless he's completely convinced or coerced into doing that. An author uh, by the name of Nahum Sarna, he writes it in his book this way. He says, The first picture we get of Pharaoh is a man possessed of a ruthless and stubborn character, devoid of all compassion. He will eventually yield but reluctantly and only under compulsion of overwhelming force. So basically, Pharaoh was mean. If Pharaoh was a fur coat-loving female, he would have been Corella Deville. If Pharaoh were born long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, he would have been Darth Vader. If Pharaoh would have played baseball, he would have played for the Yankees. But simply calling Pharaoh the bad guy is not good enough. Because as people, we have the tendency to label others. And so if we look at this story and we say, well, Pharaoh was just this, this terrible, evil man that, that God had to convince to let the Israelites go, then it, it's actually quite easy for us to say, but, but I'm not like that. I mean, how many of those people come along in our lifetime? This is one of the most famous stories in, in the history of our world. If we say, he has all these problems, then I think we're kind of comfortably saying, but I don't have any of those problems at all. So if it's not enough to say that Pharaoh is just a bad guy, then why doesn't Pharaoh let the Israelites go? Why does he refuse to release his slaves? And most importantly, what does this story have anything to do with us? Well, the primary reason, and there's a couple secondary reasons in the text we don't have time to get into, but the overwhelming reason why Pharaoh will not let the Israelites go is because the story tells us that his heart was hardened. Pharaoh had a hardened heart. Now, this is a long story, but it's amazing that 20 times, 20 times the storyteller tells us that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes the the storyteller tells us that his heart will be hardened. Sometimes it says his heart was or is hardened. Sometimes the storyteller tells us uh, through what Moses and, and Pharaoh does himself and what God says that his heart will become even more hardened in the future. 20 times. And it seems like this is Pharaoh's defining mark. When you think about Pharaoh, he had a hardened heart. That was his telltale characteristic. And every villain seems to have a defining mark, whether it's a a historical person, some sort of shortcoming that they have, 
or whether we're talking about a make-believe story. The Wicked Witch of the West, she had her magic broom. Jafar had his staff. Captain Hook had his hook. And Pharaoh had his hardened heart. But unlike other villains and some of these other stories, Pharaoh's hardened heart is something that you or I can just as easily develop. Have you ever interacted with a person who has hardened their heart? Have you ever had a time in your life, through various circumstances, where you have sensed that your heart has grown cold, that has actually stiffened and hardened? Well, the tricky part of this story is the fact that there is not just one reason, there's actually two reasons the story tells us as to why Pharaoh has a hardened heart. And these reasons seem very contradictory. These reasons have baffled people for years. These are reasons that that a lot of atheists say is a very, very good reason not to follow God, not to believe in God, or if there is is a God, not to want to do anything to be obedient to him because of this very reason. Just after reading that Pharaoh... Pharaoh will need God's mighty hand to convince him to let the Israelites go. We read God say in Exodus 4, verse 31, that he, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God himself will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let God's people go. So what are we to make of this? God is the one, not just Pharaoh. God is the one that is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And Exodus doesn't just tell us this one time, kind of like maybe kind of a a little parenthetical to the story. Oh, by the way, this is one way of understanding it. No, multiple times this phrase is repeated. And the thing that we must understand about this phrase of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is that this was a metaphor. And I don't explain this to kind of do away with this difficulty in the text. I do it because as readers of the Bible, we have to understand that we were not the primary intended people to read this story. It wasn't written for us. It was written for the the Israelites to remember what happened. It was an oral tradition at first, and then it was written down. And so whenever we read literature that's thousands of years old, we have to think about how we naturally interpret something versus how it was originally written, written and meant to be. And this was a metaphor, just as you and I use metaphors all the time. And so it doesn't mean that God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. It simply means that the relationship between God's action and the condition of Pharaoh's heart is different than what we would probably think when we first read this. Now, after the stock market collapsed in the fall of 2008, it was very common to hear people say, Wall Street stole my money. Wall Street stole my money. Now, people living during this time frame, we understood what they meant. The suits on Wall Street, those in the banking industry, in the investment industry, the poor choices that they made, their irresponsibility had cost common investors numbers. So based on their retirement, now it was down 60% or 40% or whatever it was. What they didn't mean was that the actual pieces of concrete that make up the street in New York City all of a sudden left New York City, went over to someone's house, knocked on the door, pillaged through their house, took their money, and then the pieces of concrete went back to Wall Street. But when we look at that phrase, Wall Street stole my money, that's literally what that would mean. But it's a metaphor, of course. That's how we speak. And that's what the narrator is saying in this story here as well. The point is that God and Pharaoh's hardened heart are related, 
but one does not directly cause the other. And when the narrator tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he means that God allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. God in this story is a facilitator. He is allowing what Pharaoh has naturally done already, the way that he has constructed his character, he's allowing that to flow true throughout the rest of this story. Of the 20 times that Pharaoh's heart is referenced in this story, the narrator divides the relationship equally between Pharaoh and God. Isn't that interesting? Ten times in the story, Pharaoh was said to harden his own heart. And in the other ten instances, the story tells us that it is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart. And while this may only satisfy some of us this morning, it's important to note that it's not until after the sixth plague has hit Egypt that the narrator tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So the responsibility lies on Pharaoh alone for what happens to him and his nation. So at the beginning of this story and at the beginning of this message, if you thought to yourself that Pharaoh is nothing more than a callous, brutal, villainous character, you were right. You were correct. But of course, you and I have the same potential to develop this sort of character in our own life. A hardened heart is best described as a numbed soul. A numbed soul. It's become calloused. The nerves have been damaged. The emotion is running toxic. The vowels have been shut off. Quite naturally, a hardened heart is the opposite of a softened heart. Now, growing up, I played a lot of baseball. And whenever I played baseball, I almost always played a middle infield position. I played shortstop, second base, played a little bit of third base. And as a, as a baseball player playing in the middle infield, there's a term that's used. It's one of those terms I never had a coach or a player or anyone explain to me what this meant. It was one of those things in life that you just started to understand what it was because everyone talked about it. And for middle infielders, one of the most important things you can do defensively, a skill you can develop is to develop what's known as soft hands. Develop soft hands. Now, I've since learned that this is also a hockey term and that hockey players with soft hands have a great ability to maneuver the puck on their stick. But I don't know anything about hockey, so I'm not going to go down that trail and embarrass myself. I'll stick with what I know. We'll talk about baseball. So I had a coach in high school, and our coach, understanding he wanted his middle infielders to develop soft hands. He developed a training device. He, he developed this tool to help us do this. And the reason why you want to develop soft hands is because you want to be fluid with the ball. When the ball is hit to you, you want to naturally be able to take both hands and, and receive the ball in an all-in-one motion, receive it, glove it, transfer it to your throwing hand, and get rid of it as fast as possible. That's what the, the term means, soft hands. Now, I don't have the device that he constructed, but it's very similar to a ping-pong paddle. In fact... I tried to find what he made, and I found out that he made it himself. I couldn't find it online. I called a couple of sports stores during the week, and then I finally connected with my high school baseball coach on Facebook, and he told me in a couple of minutes exactly what he did. He took three-inch, three-quarter-inch plywood, and he basically made it about the size of a baseball glove. So he made it about 10, 11 inches, and he didn't, he didn't heat up the plywood. He didn't bend it at all. It was completely flat plywood like this ping-pong paddle. And then he fashioned a strap that went from the, the thumb to the backside of the hand. And as infielders, we had to put this thing on. This was now our glove. And then we assumed our positions in the infield dirt. And he took a fungo back and he started ripping ground balls at us. And so we would sit there with, with our glove, take 
you know, take our position, and we would have to squat in front of the ball, and we would have to field this ball. Well, it doesn't take a baseball player to tell you that it's a lot easier to field the ground ball with a glove than it is with a piece of plywood. But you learned. You couldn't play lazy. You couldn't one-hand the ball. You couldn't backhand the ball. You had to get in front of the ball. You had to crouch, and you had to glove it with both hands, and you had to use both hands, and naturally we developed that skill. You see, in baseball, you have to be extremely intentional to develop soft hands. And in life, you have to be extremely intentional to develop a softened heart. The reaction of a baseball against plywood is pretty similar to how Pharaoh responded to the words of God. He was hardened. He was calloused. Pharaoh's eyes saw frogs, saw darkness, saw locusts, saw pain and suffering. And yet the story tells us that he did not listen. His ears heard the warnings of future plagues, but his heart was unyielding. Now, this story does not tell us a lot about how Pharaoh developed a hard heart or even what a hardened heart actually is, but the story does tell us how a hardened heart responds. What happens when someone has a hardened heart? And the story says that a hardened heart is slow to listen. A hardened heart is slow to listen. We read this six times in this story. I'll give you a couple of examples. Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Again, in chapter 8, verse 19. The magicians, these were advocates of Pharaoh. After the, the third plague, they couldn't concoct all these different plagues that were happening. And they, they actually said to him in, in, in chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen. You see, a hardened heart is slow to listen. Which is really why there's ten plagues listed in this story and not nine. Or four. Or even one. Because Pharaoh was said to have developed a hardened heart and he was slow to listen. Time and time again, God spoke to Pharaoh. Time and time again, Moses gave him a warning. This will happen tomorrow if you will not let my people go. And Pharaoh would not relent. He had a hardened heart and he would not listen. And the words that Moses heard from the Lord God at the burning bush ring true. When the Lord says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. A hardened heart is slow to listen. Now, God speaks through messengers. In this story, he speaks through Aaron and through Moses. He speaks to us as well today. He speaks to us through his word as we're looking at today. He speaks through us through other people, through lyrics, through adversity, through, through uh, challenges in our life, through prayers, through dreams. God speaks to us in a number of different ways. He's not limited in how he speaks to us, but we limit ourselves if our hearts are hardened because a hardened heart is slow to listen. Now, I believe I have a couple of volunteers who are ready to, to demonstrate for us how a hardened heart responds. So if they can come up front at this time, who do I have? I've got the brothers. Perfect. I've got Jeremy and Jordan. Jeremy's wearing a green shirt. Jordan's wearing a red shirt. And because I'm partial to the younger brother, I'm going to put Jeremy over here. 
and Jordan, you're going to stand there. And Jeremy already told me that he's scared. So this is working out just beautifully. I'm going to put a towel down here, and I'm going to have you stand right on that towel. And now I'm going to adorn you in what everybody is afraid of, a garbage bag. So you can slip this over your head there, Jordan. There you go. And I'm going to give you this. And you're, you're going to take a couple steps back, but not too far. We want to make sure he feels this. And I'm going to give you two objects, which are going to be very self-explanatory. A rock and later a heart made out of sponge. So this illustration is pretty self-evident. We have water being shot at a rock and being shot at a sponge. Now you want to place this probably right around here. Now, Jeremy, you go ahead and you aim at that rock, and we're going to see how a hardened heart responds. You, no, you just really, you pepper them. You just keep going with that thing. There you go. A little higher. That, okay, that's good. We'll stop there. So as we can see from this rock, the rock is repelling the water, quite obviously, right? A hardened heart is slow to listen. might penetrate the outside of the heart a little bit, but it's pretty much just on the surface. Let's see what that sponge does. Don't hold back, Jeremy. But do aim for the sponge. <laughs> Jordan, you're lifting it over your eyes. Where do you think you're going to get hit? All right, that's good. Conversely, a softened heart holds in the water. Thanks, guys. And you know what? Um, you get, uh, Jeremy, you get a few candies here. But because Jordan endured the brunt of the exercise, he gets the rest of the bag and we'll let him decide what he wants to do with those. Thank you very much. The point of this morning's message is this. A hardened heart is slow to listen. We see it in the story of Pharaoh. We see it in the story of individuals we know in our lives. We might even see it in our own life as well. So the question that I want to ask you this morning is this. What's the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart? For everything we can see from what happened with Pharaoh in this story, he doesn't really take any time to analyze what's going on. It's not until he is completely broken that he finally relents. And even after that, he goes after the Israelites and he pursues them, which basically costs a great amount of his people. What's the condition of your heart today? If you were to rate your heart on a scale of 1 to 10, what number would you attribute to your heart? If the number one is a heart that is as hard as that rock that Jordan was holding, it's become bitter, it's become solid, it is the heart of Pharaoh, wounded and insensitive. It doesn't listen. It's a heart that chooses not to respond. A heart that demands that God speaks with such incredible volume and such incredible force before it will do anything to take any sort of action. A rating of 10 for your heart is a heart that's as soft as a sponge. It's ready to absorb the words of God eager to listen, ready to be 
obedient. What's the condition of your heart? Are you a four? Maybe a seven? Is your heart at the level of a two? Now, if there was a gift that I could give anyone today, believe me, I would love to do this. I would love to give everyone here this morning a softened heart. I would love to be able to gift our church with hearts that are soft, hearts that are open to what God has to say, hearts that are ready to move with how God asks. But the only one that can give you this gift is yourself. Because we're the only ones that are responsible. We're the only ones capable of molding our hearts as God empowers us. Each one of us is responsible for the condition of our own hearts. And if you're here today and you've chosen to follow Jesus, this is your ultimate calling, to develop your heart to be aligned with the heart of Christ. The things that break the heart of Christ break your heart. The very mind and passion and will of Christ is the same in your heart as it is to his. Remember Jesus at, at the Garden of Gethsemane. He, I believe, looked at the condition of his heart. He was honest to the Father and said, Not my will, but yours be done. Pharaoh, conversely, said, Only my will. I care nothing about the authority or the will of God. What's the condition of your heart? Determining where you are is the first step to getting where you want to go. And that's why I think this question is so important. As we consider the condition of our heart, I believe that God will not only reveal what that is, but he'll empower us and provide us with opportunities to soften our heart. So ask yourself this question first to allow yourself to get where you want to go to soften your heart. The band's going to come forward. They're going to lead us through a couple of songs that speak directly about the state of our hearts, that speak about the desire to develop a heart that is soft for God, for his words, and to follow him in obedience. So I encourage you to follow through with this question I provided you with, asking yourself what the condition of your heart is, and asking God to challenge you in obedience I'm going to offer a prayer as the the band prepares to lead us through these songs.